I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 2, uh, to the passage that we skipped over a few weeks back in our study of the book of Acts. I invite you to turn there this morning with us, and we are going to spend our time in verse 22 going down through verse 34. Tim Keller wrote a book called King's Cross, and the last chapter of the book is entitled The Beginning. And it's a chapter that talks about the resurrection of Christ, which we know is central to the Christian faith, absolutely essential. All of history for biblical Christianity pivots on the resurrection of Christ. He writes these words, In the decades before and after Jesus' life and death, there were dozens of messianic movements in Israel. In almost every case, the leader was killed. In many cases, by execution, and after the leader's death, each movement invariably collapsed. Everyone went home, and that was it. Of all those dozens of movements, only one did not collapse after the death of its leader. Not only did it not collapse, it exploded. And in the course of time, in about 300 years, it had spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. Out of all those messianic movements, what made the Christian faith different? What distinguishes biblical Christianity from all of the messianic movements of the day of Christ? What, what sets them apart? In fact, what is it that sets biblical Christianity apart from all options in terms of religion in the world? This one fact is what makes the Christian faith different. Christians would say, in answer to the question, what makes it different? Christians would say, it is because of what happened after the leader of the movement was killed. So what did happen to cause such explosive growth in Christianity after its founder's death? And the answer to that question is in the text that Christian read to us this morning. On the third day, he rose again. And in his resurrection, conquered death by his death. I want to make quickly three observations about the resurrection to set the scene for what I'd like to talk about this morning. The observations are these. The resurrection of Jesus Christ on the part of his followers was utterly and completely unexpected. Okay, it was utterly and completely unexpected. Case in point, Matthew chapter 16. The women go to the tomb with spices, typically 70 to 80 pounds of spices, to wrap a body to prepare it for permanent burial. Okay, so the women go to the tomb expecting what? Expecting to find the body of Christ. When they get to the tomb, what do they find? They find the stone moved away. And they're utterly surprised because on the way to the tomb, what did they say? They said to each other, who's going to move the stone? And when they get there, they find it open. They don't say, hey, what he said is true. No, they're surprised. They're like, what happened? They go into the tomb and the body of Christ is missing. What do they say? Someone stole his body. The resurrection of Jesus for the early church was utterly and completely unexpected. On that early Sunday morning, the, the early disciples and believers did not wake up and say, hey, I have an idea. Let's go check out the empty tomb. None of them imagined that it could happen. It was beyond what they could imagine. It was, in fact, in their minds, impossible. Second truth is this. 
the reports of the resurrection of Christ were always met with what? Throw out a couple words. What were the report when they said, hey, he, he's risen? Skepticism, alarm, disbelief, <clears throat> doubt, pervasive and consistent. That was the response of the early church. When the woman came back, Luke 24, and reported that Christ had been seen and was raised from the dead. What was the response of the disciples? It sounded like, you know the word in the New International? It sounded like nonsense. It was unbelievable, unprecedented, and completely unexpected. No one in the group said, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I was right. Not one. Folks, that's fascinating. That absolutely is fascinating to me. The Apostle Paul will later say that everything hinges on this simple truth. That he is, in fact, risen from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul goes this far. He says, if Christ is not risen, I'm a liar. And our faith is futile. It's rubbish. That's how far Paul's willing to go. That if Christ didn't rise from the dead, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I am wasting my life telling people about him. In fact, I am a liar, and so is Jesus Christ. I think it's C.S. Lewis who made this observation about the claims of Christ. He said, as you look at and study the New Testament, you, you can only come to one of three conclusions concerning Christ. His prophecies, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. Kill me, and on the third day I will rise again. Three times that is reiterated in three chapters. Okay, now, either he is a liar who intentionally deceived the disciples, or he is a lunatic, that is, he believed he could actually do it, but couldn't. Or he is Lord. Okay, there are no other options when you read the biblical account of the life of Christ. The third observation I want to make about the resurrection is simply this. For the disciples, it was a life-altering, life-changing, transformational event. It, for them, changed absolutely everything about their life. John chapter 20, after the crucifixion of Christ, we find them on Sunday in the evening. Here's what the text says. They were locked in a room for fear of the Jews. Okay? What does that mean? It means they were hiding from those that had crucified Christ because they believed that they were going to also come after them. And they did not believe that the one who had called them and rescued them from their sin had in fact yet risen. They just, skepticism, doubt, unexpected. It, why? Because it is impossible. It can't happen from a naturalistic, scientific perspective. And that's where the disciples certainly were coming from. However, 50 days later, you find a dramatic transformation. That transformation is revealed in Acts chapter 2, the text that we're going to look at this morning, where Peter stands up and gives a bold proclamation about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then as a result of that call, he calls people to trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Find help in Christ. That's the call. So you find this man who goes from being cowardly to becoming bold. A denier becomes a preacher of the gospel of Christ. And you have to ask the question, how did that happen? Why did the messianic movement of Jesus survive when all the others failed? The answer is simple. 
He is risen. He is risen. There is no other explanation for the explosive birth of the early church. I want us to begin reading in verse 22. Peter's sermon to the early church. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, which is to give a very specific identity to which Jesus we're talking about, the one from the town where they said nothing good could come from there. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. That is a certified death, certified by the centurion, certified by Pilate, certified by the high priest, certified by those who put him in the grave. Jesus Christ was, in fact, certainly and absolutely dead. That is what we know is clear. A transformational event for the disciples. And an event that Peter lays at the feet of those that had put him to death in terms of responsibility. What does he say to them? What he says to them is, in putting Christ to death, you did not act independently. You didn't act outside of the plan of God. When you put him to death, you did, and look at this verse real quickly, You, this man, verse 23, handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. All right, what did Jesus say? Jesus said this, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Okay, Jesus gave himself as a ransom price to pay the sin debt that I and you owe to God. Verse 24, after him being rejected and crucified, verse 24, the word but enters in. But God, and this is the contrast, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. And I want you to fix your mind on this phrase. Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Okay, that is an astonishing statement. It was impossible for death to keep its grip on him. One of the illustrations I read of this statement, and I think, I thought, okay, how do you describe this? One writer said it this way. He said, you can't, you can catch a bear with a butterfly net. You can get it over him, but you can't keep him. Okay, you can catch him with a butterfly net, but you cannot keep him. And the word that's used here is the picture of a woman who has come to full term in terms of pregnancy, by the way, I have no personal experience with this. I've watched it happen three times. But at many levels, I can't relate. Okay? Worst thing I've ever done is plucked up my fingernail. It's the closest I've ever gotten. By mistake, by the way. Picture is this. A woman who has come to nine months. And I remember my wife, when we were going through this process three times. I remember my wife saying, I have to push. No, no, wait, wait, wait. We're doing this. We're doing that. And she said... It's time. Okay? That's the exact picture here. The grave pregnant with the power of Christ could not keep him. Folks, that is is powerful. That is what transformed the disciples. It was impossible. It was unexpected. It was met with skepticism. 
but the grave could not keep him. And I love the, I love the power of that statement. This happened to a woman last week at 36,000 feet flying over the continent of Africa. Gave birth to a son. I looked at his name on the internet and said, I am not even going to try to pronounce that name. I bet you it's 12 letters long. All right, on that plane, she just water broke and things started to happen. And what the pilot said was this. He realized I couldn't get the plane down before the birth would come. It could not be contained. Okay, Jesus Christ rose from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep the author of life in captivity. And that's what we mean when we sung. He conquered over death by death. He went into it and then declared victory over it by what? By rising from the dead. Okay, and then we start to think these questions that relate to, the, to, to a hymn I sung when I was a kid. How many of you remember the song, Up From The Grave Here Rose? Remember that song? All right, old, powerful hymn, Up From The Grave Here Rose, right? Here's what one of the verses says. It says this, Death could not keep its prey. You can't catch a bear with a butterfly net. It would be silly to try. You may get him in there, but you can't keep him. And the grave could not keep Christ just like a mom at full term of pregnancy once the water breaks and things start to happen. Cannot keep the child. It's coming forth. That is to me a glorious picture. And what happened in this? Here's what Peter says. And this, is, this to me is absolutely fascinating. Verse 24, but God raised him. Verse 25, David said about him, about who? About Christ. And then he begins to quote from Psalm 16, which was written 1,000 years before the death of Christ. Peter picks it up and says, when Peter wrote this, he spoke by God about the Christ. Okay, and listen to what it says, verse 25. David said, I saw the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Which is to say, I will have no anxiety. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body will live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made me to know the paths of life. You're the source. You're the author. You will fill me with joy one day in your presence. He goes on to say this. He says, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. Meaning what? Meaning the one that had died a thousand years ago and was buried in the grave is still there. And the question obviously is this. Then who is it that Jesus is talking about? Or that Peter is talking about? Why does he quote Psalm 16? Notice what it says. It says, but David, when he wrote this a thousand years ago, was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of, that he, God, would place one of David's descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, the coming of Christ. And Peter goes further, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to the grave, nor would his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life. And here's what Peter then says. We saw Him. We, the word that He uses, we are witnesses of this fact. We can give credible, valid testimony. Folks, understand this. As you read through the Gospels, especially the accounts about the women that come back, you will find that their names are personally listed. 
you will find that Paul, when he references the resurrection of Christ, that his body did not undergo decay, but instead raised from the dead, you will find each of the writers listing individual names, and Paul will say, if you are skeptical about this, you can go talk to the witnesses. But folks, you would not do that. You would not make those kinds of promises and claims unless the witnesses were alive and had in fact seen him risen from the dead. And that's the argument that Peter is giving. He came forth from the dead in what? In fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the risen Lord. And the question that starts to to come to our minds is, how would this truth, if you believed it, if you accepted this, that He has done the impossible, that He has in fact conquered the grave, conquered the cross, and its effect, how would that change your life? How would it affect you if He's not a liar? which I think is a sad option. If he's not a lunatic, you can't read the story of Jesus and say, yeah, he kind of lines up with crazy people who delusionally thought that he could overcome the grave when all the other messianic leaders didn't think they could. He doesn't fit in either of those boxes because he is, in fact, King of kings and Lord of lords. The question then we ask is, what difference does this make in my life today? What difference does the fact that Jesus rose and conquered the grave, what difference does the fact of what we have sung this morning, what difference does it make? How will it affect you? How will it change you if you believe it is true? I'll just give you these simple thoughts. One is this. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I can be forgiven. Folks, here's something you will find absolutely fascinating. Read through the promises of the resurrection or the reports of the resurrection, and you will find they are always inseparably linked with the cross work of Christ. In Mark 8, 9, and 10, when, when Peter talks about the, or when Jesus talks about the resurrection of, the, of himself to his disciples, he always says, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. They will try him. They will put him into the hands of sinful men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And can I give you this challenge? Go read through Mark 8 through 10. See the, see the, the promises, the forecast. This, this is, Jesus had coupled this together with his cross work. He would die and he would be raised. And the Apostle Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the gospel. That's the good news that sinners need to hear. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. According to what? According to Psalm 1. According to Psalm 22, which if you read it, gives you one of the starkest, if you will, descriptions of crucifixion a thousand years before its common practice in Rome. Detail. You can go and read that written by David. If, in fact, Christ is raised from the dead, it means this. I can be forgiven because the death, burial, or the death and burial of Christ are always inseparably linked together with the resurrection. The resurrection becomes what? The validation of everything that Jesus said. He could have said this to the disciples. He could have said, I'm going to die and pay the price for your sin. And that's it. He could have said that. But that's not where he stopped. He pushed it further because there was a need for validation. And the validation was that by his death, burial, and resurrection, our sins then are able to be forgiven by the blood of Christ. Paul believed this so strongly that I can be forgiven that he would say this in 1 Corinthians 15. He would say, if Christ isn't risen, your faith is futile. But this is the amazing statement to me. The faith that's holding you together, it's futile. And you are still in your 
make sense. Okay, do you understand that? If Christ isn't written, the faith, the trust, the, 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 the power that you expect from Him, all that you expect from Him, it's empty. And worse, you're still in your sin. You still don't have hope of forgiveness and a home with God. But then he goes on in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, but now is Christ risen. Okay, it's just, it is such a powerful, powerful argument. The result of this forgiveness from Christ is found in Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those that God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father. And what is He doing? He is interceding for us. When our many sins are recounted before God, what does Jesus do? Jesus strikes it from the record by His shed blood. Because of the resurrection of Christ, He stands at the Father's right hand, exalted in all of His glory, as Carmelo read earlier. And what does He do? He strikes from the record the truth, not the lies, the truth about you and I if you have trusted in His shed blood. Our sin is removed by the death of Christ. That removal is validated by His resurrection from the dead, and we make no contribution to that forgiveness. Okay, it is done by Christ. It is done for us on our behalf. So the first thing that happens in terms of change is the realization that I, with all of my sinfulness, can be forgiven. Paul would later be able to say, I was the cheapest of sinners, and God forgave me. There's hope this morning for you to find forgiveness in Christ. It also means this. The resurrection of Christ also means that I should be forgiving. Now, I am certain that in a room of this size, with the number of people that are here, that there are many in this room who have experienced wounds, abuse, Struggles, difficulty, rejection, betrayal. And you want it to be made right. You want wrongs to be righted. That is a, a, in, in as much as we are created in the image of God, that is a natural, if you will, longing and tendency of our heart that we want the wrongs that are present in our world to be righted. When you watch the news and you see tragedies, when you read about that guy that's running, quote, the Lord's army in the continent of Africa, you know what you want? I'm going to tell you what you want. You want him dead, right? It's in your heart. What do you, you're, why are people letting that man get away with that? It seems like such a small, weak, anemic force compared to the powers that be in the world that we live in. But there's no justice. What does your heart cry for? Your heart says, God, bring justice. Let them have what they deserve. But be careful when you say that. Be careful when you say that. Because the cry of a forgiven sinner is what? God, don't give me what I deserve. Our problem with letting go of hurts and wounds and struggles and difficulties and all of the things that happen to us in life, what's our pro- why do we struggle with letting go? And saying, you know what, I'm going to put that into God's hands. Why do we struggle? Because we're asking this question. If I don't make that person pay who hurt me, will they ever pay? Will there ever be a day when justice is present? so strong of a justice that I can live in relationship to them like Jesus lived in relationship to those that crucified Him. On the cross, what did Jesus say? He said, Father, forgive them. Stephen, at his death, what did he say? Father, do not lay this this crime to their charge. Don't hold it against them. Why? 
because he had been forgiven by the grace that came to him through Christ. He looked up into heaven, saw the, the Son of God standing at the Father's right hand, interceding for him. And what did he say? Out of that, he's like, Father, forgive them. The resurrection of Christ will not only forgive you, it will make you unbelievably forgiving. N.T. Wright makes this observation. He says, in a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news that there can be. Right? Isn't that true? The best news that there can be in terms of injustice is that one day it will all be made right. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, that's where we live, folks. Watch the news. And sometimes look at your own heart. A good God N.T. Wright says, must also be a God of judgment. A good God, a just God, must cause consequences to come for sin. Okay, and that's... I'll, I'll touch on an issue, and I don't mean to be controversial in saying this. Okay? The case that's, that's unfolding in, in Sanford, Florida. Okay? It's tragic and sad. Why? You know what we want? Uh, here's what I want. Step outside of all the racial ramifications of that situation. You know what I want? I want justice. I want the truth to come out. If the guy that killed him was wrong, then he should experience the penalty for murder. And if he was unjustly attacked, then whatever needs to come out of that needs to come out of that. In your heart, what do you want? You want that, I want that problem to go away. It scares me. It reminds me of what happened back with Rodney King, doesn't it? It's a tinderbox. What do you want? I want justice. That's what I want to see. I don't know which way it falls. But in your heart, in the image of God, what do you want? You want it to be made right. Before Jesus was crucified, the religious leader said to him, Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And what are they picking up on? They're picking up on a courtroom scene from Daniel chapter 7. When the Son of Man comes with the clouds and He takes His throne and a courtroom is set up and the wicked are judged and justice is meted out. You read that text, you know what you say? That's what I want to see. Every human heart longs for a benevolent, just judge who can see through the fog, who can see the Trayvon Martin situations and the Zimmerman Martins clearly, who can see it for exactly what it is and give an absolutely just verdict. Not through democracy, but through a risen king. Here's what Jesus said to them. They said, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Here's what Jesus says. It is as you say. And one day you will see the Son of Man. What? Coming on the clouds. You know, folks, you know what that means? Your desire to make someone pay, to give vengeance, should be resisted. Because one day justice will be served. And your fear that they may not get what they deserve, either what they deserve will fall on Jesus as did my sin, or it will fall on them. But the risen Lord means I can be forgiving. Why? Because one day He is coming back. Matthew 28, 20, after He's raised from the dead, He says to His disciples, and for any, anyone to say this, you would say, okay, either Jesus is a liar and a lunatic or He's Lord. Listen to this statement, Matthew 28, 20, after the resurrection. Jesus stands before them and says, 
all authority is what? Given to me. All. Okay, folks, that's the Jesus of the Bible. He has authority over death. He has authority over sin. He has authority over justice. Either he is a liar or crazy. For he is Lord. And if he is Lord, and if he is depicted in Daniel chapter 7 as the ultimate courtroom in heaven, meeting out justice, that we all desire at some level, then you and I can be forgiving. We can let go of the wrongs that people have done to us. Romans chapter 12 says, Do not take revenge, my friends. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He speaks into all of your pain and all of your troubles and all of your hurts. What is He saying? Don't carry that backpack of bitterness around. He is risen. And one day, He's going to come with the clouds. And when He comes, what is He going to do? He's going to set up His courtroom. And there won't be any slick lawyers who get people off for things that they have done. No. No. The risen Lord will see right through everything. And for everyone who has trusted Christ, His blood will be applied to the list of indictments against them. And they will be forgiven by the power of Christ, certified by the resurrection. And everyone who has done wrong, everyone who has been brought brokenness and hurt to the world that we live in, will get what they deserve. Therefore, I don't have to live saying, you know what, that person hurt me, so I have to pay him back. Or my mate has been unkind to me, therefore I have to make them pay. Or my parents haven't been fair and just to me, therefore i got to somehow, I got to somehow hurt them. Folks, that's a burden. Many people live under that kind of a burden. Things that happen at work, in the neighborhood, and work. It, it, it's sad. We get handcuffs of bitterness on. We become ineffective. Remember, one day justice is coming. He is risen. And one day he says, I first Thessalonians 4, one day he's going to come with the clouds. What is it? It's the picture of the heavenly courtroom coming to earth to do what? To make everything that is said un true. Everything that is broken, that breaks your heart, everything that you listen to and that you see, He comes to make it untrue. Isn't that exactly what the resurrection is all about? Friday is what? It's a sad day. But as the black preacher said years ago, but Sunday is coming. Friday was the day of greatest injustice. Sunday was the day of vindication and validation and the hope that your sins can be forgiven. And that your life can be changed by the power of God. Death could not keep him. Why? He's the king of the universe. Peter would later say in chapter 3, you killed the author of life. That won't work. He's the source of life. You, you, you can't keep him down. It also means this. It also means that I no longer need to fear death. Verse 28 of this text David says, you have made me to know the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. You have made me to know the path of life. Because you went into death and for us conquered death by death. He, he took the wrath of death and then broke the chains of death and came forth from the grave. Death could not keep its pray. Therefore, I no longer as a child of God's need to fear death. He is the author of life. And 1 Corinthians 15 will say this. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits from 
the grave. First fruits are this. It's the first vegetable that you pick out of the garden, probably spinach leaves. You just you go out and you cut them off, and you go in and you say to your wife or your children or to your husband, whoever you are, you go to them and say, this is the beginning. What is it? More is coming. More is coming. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those that raised from the dead. And all those that trust in Him will experience this glorious and powerful resurrection. Is it any wonder that David would say in Psalm 23, and these words are going to be familiar to you right away, what does he say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. Why? You're with me. I mean, folks, it's that simple. When the resurrected Christ came and was in the midst of His disciples, they were changed. Why? Unbelievable. All responses skeptical and life-changing. It affected them to the very core of their being and changed the trajectory of their life forever. Jesus would then call to the early church in Revelation chapter 2. He will say this. He will say to His church, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Folks, I don't know if you've read many books on Christian suffering. I've taken some time to do that. One is called Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ by John Piper. You will weep as you watch and listen to what people have endured for the cause of Christ. If you read Brother Yun's book from China, The Heavenly Man, you will be in absolute shock and dismay. Most of you will probably read it with a little bit of skepticism, saying, could that much happen to one person? Here's what I'm going to tell you. If 20% of it's true, it's astonishing. And Jesus says to every Christian, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown, which is what? Life. Be faithful unto death, and I will overcome it with life itself. For the Christian, death is, in this context, transformed. It is redefined. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul will talk about death by saying what? They fell asleep. Folks, think about that. What does that mean? If they fell asleep, then there is in, in, in implicit in that, they're going to be waking up one day. They're going to be shaken from the grave. And that's what we mean when we sing that song, Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with Him again. His life is our life. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. The result is that the greatest fear that we have as human beings is gone. Sometimes at my age, you start to get little weird things in your body. Now, you might be under stress and you feel something in your heart and you're thinking, is that serious or not? I, 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 get, I get that stuff and I'm like, I'm fine. The other day I was running and I thought, oh, I think I feel heaviness. I'm thinking, why, why, am I, why do I care? I want to die. I don't want to die. But in Christ, what? You say, I'm not going to die, honey. I'm just going to going to fall asleep. Folks, do you understand what a radical redefinition of death that is? We live running to the doctors. This country spends billions on what? Avoiding death. Why? We're scared of death. We're afraid. We don't, why? You don't know someone that can deliver you from it. If you know someone that can deliver you from it, you know what I do? I just keep jogging. Okay? I may be stupid. Okay? And if I die, just say, he, he was running and he fell asleep. That's 
Why does, Paul, why does Paul talk about it that way? Because one day, shaken, waking, glorious. Just, death is redefined as falling asleep. It is not goodbye. It is, I will see you later. It's not permanent. That's, Paul said, I'll see you again. For me to live as Christ, to die is what? It's gain. It's not to be feared. Why? Christ went in and conquered death by death. He entered into the very clutches of it and broke it and came back. It is not the end. It is the beginning. It is not going away. It is going home. And Paul could say, it's not loss. It's gain if you're in Christ. This last thought. I can be free from life's ultimate anxieties because Jesus Christ is risen. David says in verse 25 of this text, he says, I saw the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be what? Shaken. What is David saying? Well, when you get afraid, what happens? You shake. You tremble. You tremble. David says, because He is at your right hand. He's exalted there. He's the author of life. I will not be shaken. I will not be afraid of death. I see the Lord. What is this? This is a psalm of confidence. You read through Psalm, uh, psalm 16 now, you're going to come away saying, wow. Wow. It gives me confidence that everything that's wrong will be made right. But you have to ask the question, why is it so hard for us to face suffering, disability, disappointment, struggle, disease? Why is it so hard? Somebody shares something in church about somebody falling sick, getting cancer, something like that. What happens? There's a collective sigh. There's a groan. There's a desire for what is wrong to be made right. That's what we feel. We long for the day when there will be no more cancer diagnoses, no more heart trouble. Right? That's what we long for. A day when knees don't hurt anymore. Right? Every time I run, it's like, ah, it's back. And I've got to walk back to the house. Okay, you know what I want? I want a body that's light and agile and, and can move. That's what I want. It's not what I have. I have a body that's dying. It hurts me. I have to go see die, go get checked. That's life. The resurrection of Christ challenges that. It says don't let that stuff give you anxiety. One day you'll get a new body. And everything that's wrong with it will be made right. And you'll be fit for His glory and free from sin ready to love and enjoy Him forever. It's hard to face struggles and suffering. It's hard to do the right thing when it's going to cost you money, reputation, it causes fear. Why? Because the bottom line is, we think that this broken world and this broken body is the only world and the only body and it's the only treasure that I'll ever have. Is that not true? That's why we, fear, we, we, we go into anxiety when trouble comes. We need to remember a better day is coming. And yes, our bodies will break and we will at times die and we will at times struggle and suffer and treasure will at times fade away. Don't act like it's the only hope you have. Don't like, act like it's the only body that you have. I'll never forget going to the hospital and visiting my dad when he was my age. It's probably why the last time my heart felt a little funny. I was thinking, hmm. I'm close to that age. Gave me a little anxiety. and I'm not talking head. Please don't come up to me afterwards and say, you need to go see the doctor. I'm, I'm just, I'm talking weird little things that happen. Okay, you don't want to panic with everyone. 
But my dad said to me, he said, you know what? And this is what every son should hear from his father. He said, you know what? It's kind of slick. That's the way my dad, he's very basic. He said, it's kind of slick. He says, I've been thinking that if I die, I'm home. And at that time, we had enormous concerns in my dad's business. Financial, just was interest rates. Remember when interest rates were at 18%? Okay, under a president of some name? Okay, back then? It was, I think it was almost killing my dad. You know what he said? He said, hey, if I'm out of here, all my anxiety's over. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Why? Because he knows what it is to trust and live in Christ. John the Baptist faced this anxiety, didn't he? He sent messengers to Jesus and said, Go ask him, are you the Christ? I set my hope on him. Is he the one? Why? John's in prison. He's coming up in the last days of his life. What is he wondering? He's wondering if Jesus is the Christ. If his hope is going to be fulfilled. What does Jesus do? Jesus quotes from Isaiah 11. Why? Because it's pictures of the kingdom. What does he say? Tell him the lame walk. The dead are raised. The blind receive their sight. No fear, John. No fear. It's all covered. Do you see? Our anxieties are put to death. Jesus comes in Revelation 21.5. He says, Behold, I am making everything new. And folks, the taste, the first taste of that in the book of Acts is what? Acts chapter 3. Where a lame man who has been there for four decades is delivered from a lifelong struggle. And his anxiety is relieved. And what does he do? He goes into the temple area and does what nobody else is doing. He's running and walking and leaping and he's praising God. Why? Anxiety is gone. He met Christ. He met the author of life. Johnny Erickson Tata was crippled at 17 years old in an accident. From the neck down, no feeling whatsoever. A full quadriplegic. She attended a church at that time that had a liturgy that involved kneeling. She went to church. And was faced with what? Her limitation. That while everybody else was kneeling and falling before God, she was in her chair with these limitations that cause us anxiety. She later went to a conference where everyone was asked to get on their knees and pray. She writes, everyone except Johnny. With everyone kneeling, I certainly stood out. I couldn't stop the tears. And I love this. Not because of self-pity. I was crying at the sight of hundreds on their knees before God because it was so beautiful. Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up, dance, and kick, and do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do is to drop ungrateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied, muscled, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light and bright and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that, so, that resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? 
hope for the resurrection of Christ. Walking and leaping and praising God. So we say, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The response from inside the tomb, He is not here. He is risen. Indeed. This morning, you need to know this. By the wounds that took the Savior away from the disciples, He bore their sin. The, the, the wounds that, that damaged their Savior, that caused them hurt, that caused them to run and hide and to betray and to deny. Those wounds bought their forgiveness. Isaiah 53 would say this, By His wounds, we are healed. And so for eternity, what does Jesus bear? He bears on His hands the scars. The permanent reminders that He paid the price for our sin and that He conquered the grave and that one day He is coming with the clouds and will put to right all wrongs and everything sad, every story that you hear that troubles you will become untrue. And you know what? A lot of times, somebody says something to you that's sad and, and troubling and heartbreaking. You know what you say to them? Tell me that's not true. Tell me you didn't just say that. Why? Because we forget the resurrection that undoes all wrong. And if you have trusted Christ, then by His wounds you have been healed. If you're here this morning, you have never trusted in the resurrected Christ, I would beg you in Christ's stead, look at Him. Is He a liar? Is He a lunatic? Or is He Lord? Would you trust in what He did for you at the cross? and be healed by the wounds that He endured for you. And Paul would say to every Christian, Therefore, my brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, end of the resurrection chapter, he would say, Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourself fully to this, because you know that your labor is not in vain. Because one day the judge will come. And when He comes, justice will rule the earth. And so we pray, what? Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth. Just like it is in heaven. And we long for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness where there are no more tears, no more fear of death, no sorrow. The former things are what? Passed away. And everything has become new. And I can tell you this, every human heart longs for that story. It begins at the cross of Christ. I pray, Father, that as we conclude our service this morning, 